Hi everybody, welcome back to the Curiosity Chronicles. Today we are going to continue the exploration of the space race, talking about Project Gemini and talking about the bridge between Mercury and Apollo on the race to the moon. But before I get into that, I wanted to make sure that I talked a little bit about the news that broke today. It is April 28, 2021 as I record this, and today we got the sad news that astronaut Michael Collins passed away from cancer at age 90. Michael Collins is sometimes referred to as the loneliest man in history, and unfortunately he's a bit of a forgotten figure at times because he was overshadowed by his more famous crewmates. While Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin were the first two men to step foot on the moon, Michael Collins was by himself orbiting the moon in the command module of Apollo 11, and that's why he's called the loneliest man in history. He's 240,000 miles away from Earth, and the only two men nearby are on the moon, and it was not guaranteed that they would be able to reunite with Collins. So there was a chance that he was going to make the long trip home by himself with a pall of tragedy around him. It took a lot of fortitude to be Michael Collins. And unfortunately, despite the fact that he was as integral to landing on the moon as Aldrin and Armstrong were, he's largely forgotten, and that's a real tragedy. So I wanted to make sure I brought light to this American hero, make sure that I mentioned him specifically at the beginning of this podcast on the day of his passing in hopes that you will, with me, take a moment to remember this great man as you listen to this podcast. So please, remember Michael Collins, remember that he was a great man and should be remembered as an American patriot, and rest in peace to Michael Collins. Now that we got that sad bit of news out of the way, we can move on and talk about part one of Project Gemini, and that is how I'm going to attempt to refer to it as Project Gemini and not Project Gemini. I don't know why, but NASA had decided that the official pronunciation would be Project Gemini, even though it seems like the general public generally would pronounce it Gemini. Unfortunately, I'll probably interchange those on accident because I'm so used to saying Gemini, but I'm going to attempt to use the official Gemini pronunciation. So let's get into this next part of the space race, the bridge between Mercury, first man in space, and first men on the moon in Apollo, and talk about Project Gemini. So this is the Curiosity Chronicles. My name is Brett Bilesma. I am your host, and this is what I was curious about this month. Project Gemini was announced by NASA on January 3, 1962. Now, if you remember last episode talking about Project Mercury, you'll notice that Gemini was announced before Mercury had ended. NASA had no time for complacency. They had no time for relaxation. They had a goal set by President Kennedy to land a man on the moon by the end of the 1960s decade. They could not end one project and then decide to start the next one. They needed to do them simultaneously if they were to meet this goal. Project Gemini was named after the constellation Gemini. Gemini is the Latin word for twins. And 
the constellation Gemini is strongly associated with the twins Castor and Pollux from Greek mythology. And actually the two brightest stars in the Gemini, you know, I, I gotta be honest, Gemini sounds so annoying to me. I, I know it's the official pronunciation, but the more I say it, the more I can't stand it. I have to say Gemini. Gemini just sounds better. So forgive me this faux pas, but I'm going to call it Project Gemini just for the sake of my own sanity. Sue me if you want to. Anyway, getting back to Project Gemini, Castor and Pollux are the two brightest stars in the Gemini constellation. And the reason NASA chose this name for this project is because unlike Mercury, the Gemini project would include two astronauts per flight. The capsule was larger, and they needed to do more scientific testing, and they needed more people. So Project Gemini, two people flying into space, not just one. Hence, the name referring to twins. It's pretty cool. And Gemini, as I've said multiple times already, was a bit of a bridge. The Mercury project although spectacular in its successes, was fairly rudimentary. And they needed to get to the very advanced level of Apollo, which would land men on the moon. But before they did that, they needed to basically test out multiple different maneuvers, which would be needed and needed to be done very, very well in order for men to land on the moon. So that is what Project Mercury was all about. And it had four main goals. They needed to test, first off, the astronauts' ability to fly long-duration missions. Remember, up until this point, Americans had only spent 22 orbits in space as the longest flight for one person. That only lasted about two days. And a mission to the moon, at minimum, would take up to eight days. So they needed to make sure they could test long-duration flight and how an, an astronaut would perform if they were kept in space for up to two weeks. And then beyond that, they had to understand how spacecraft could rendezvous and dock in orbit around Moon and Earth. That was essential to the success of Apollo, and that's something that I'll get to why they needed to be able to test that and do it well uh, as we go forward. Thirdly, they needed to perfect re-entry and landing methods. You didn't want anybody to burn up in re-entry, so they needed to make sure that the re-entry and landing was done well because they would be coming from further distances, which means the margin for error for re-entry was very slim. And then kind of along with what the first point was, but a fourth separate point, they needed to further understand the effects of longer space flights on the astronauts. Not necessarily how longer space flights would hinder or enhance their ability to perform, but how it actually physically affected their bodies. So those were the four main goals of Project Gemini, and that was what needed to be accomplished before they could move on to Apollo. Because of the goals set out for Project Gemini and later on Project Apollo, and because of the two-person missions, NASA knew that they needed to get more astronauts than just the original seven that they had currently. So they opened up to applications for a new number of astronauts. And that led 
in September of 1962 to the announcement of the new nine, the new nine astronauts. And this second class of astronauts contained some of the most famous astronauts in American history. They were Jim Lovell, Neil Armstrong, Frank Borman, Charles Pete Conrad, James McDivitt, Elliot C., Thomas Stafford, Edward White, and John Young. And those are names you're going to hear quite a bit going forward. And there were similar requirements to the Mercury program, except that the astronauts could be taller. They could be six feet tall because the capsule that Gemini would be using is a bigger capsule. But they needed to be younger. They needed to be 35 years or younger as opposed to the original seven, which was a cutoff at age 40. The reasoning behind this is because these astronauts were going to be used for Gemini and Apollo, which were long-term missions that were going to progress throughout the 1960s and into the 70s. And so they needed men that were younger so that they could continue on in the project for longer, as opposed to the short-term Project Mercury. Then beyond the new nine, they decided in October of 1963 that they needed to get even more astronauts. And so they introduced the NASA class of 1963, which I always think is really kind of funny and a little bit sad because there's like the original seven, the Mercury seven, the new nine. Oh my goodness. And the class of 1963. It just kind of is anticlimactic for those guys. But to be honest, I'm going to add to that anticlimax because I'm not going to go through all 14 of them like I just did for the new nine. There was 14 of them chosen in the third class of the NASA astronaut program. And the requirements, again, were the same. Similar. They're not the same. They had to be 34 years old, and they only needed 1,000 hours of logged flight time instead of 1,500. I do want to mention a couple people from the class of 1963 that you'll hear about going forward. Some of the more famous ones, uh, Roger B. Chaffee. He is famous within Grand Rapids area, where I'm from because that's where he was from. He's a Grand Rapids native. If you go to the museum, you can go to the Roger B. Chaffee Planetarium, I think it's called. But unfortunately, his is a pretty sad story that we'll get to in later episodes. Edwin Aldrin, more commonly known as Buzz, was a member of the 1963 class, and Michael Collins, who I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, were all members of the class of 1963. And we'll hear more about that class going forward but I don't want to take the time to mention all 14 of them. It just takes too long. The Mercury 7 were also a part of Project Gemini, but not all of them. Only three of the original seven flew in Project Gemini. The three were Gus Grissom, Wally Schirra, and Gordon Cooper. Wally Schirra is actually the only astronaut that flew in Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo. And we'll get to the sad reasoning why there was only him and not one other man from the Mercury 7 that flew in all three. But I do want to talk about what happened to the rest of the Mercury 7. I think it's interesting and worth taking the time to go through. We kind of know what happened to Deke Slayton. Deke Slayton still had his heart issue. He was still grounded during Gemini, and so he stayed on in the same role as the assistant, and soon into Gemini he was promoted to Director of Flight Crew Operations continued in that role for quite some time. Alan Shepard is a super interesting story. 
he was originally chosen to be the commander of the first manned Gemini flight. And he was training, and one day he woke up, and he had intense vertigo, dizziness, and he ended up getting so dizzy and having this horrible bout of vertigo that he actually ended up vomiting. And then it kind of went away. And he didn't have to deal with it for a little while, but then it would come back. He would have these bouts, these episodes that were just horrible dizziness, couldn't even stand up. And finally, he knew that he had to go to the doctors and he was told that he had Meniere's syndrome, I believe is how you pronounce it. Ryan, if you're listening to this, my doctor brother, let me know if I pronounce that correctly. Meniere's disease or syndrome. It is a syndrome that does not have a known cause, but it seems to be from an abnormal amount of fluid that is built up in the inner ear, and it can cause, obviously, vertigo, ringing of the ears, and loss of hearing. Now, when Shepard went to the doctors, they obviously had to bring this to the attention of NASA, and a panel of NASA doctors and medics grounded Shepard. He was not allowed to fly, with obvious good reason. If he was to have one of these bounce while in space, it could easily cost someone their life including himself. And so he was thinking about quitting NASA. He couldn't fly anymore. He did not really understand what the point of sticking around was. He was told by doctors that there was about a 20% chance that the Meniere's syndrome or disease would clear up on its own. And Deke Slayton, after he was promoted to the director of flight crew operations, he convinced Shepard to stick around. He made him the supervisor of the astronaut office. He was basically Deke's right-hand man within NASA. And he convinced him to stick around because if there was a chance that he could ever fly again, he didn't want Shepard to miss out on that chance by resigning from NASA. And so he stuck around. And it was a good thing that Shepard stuck around because we will get to more interesting antics from Shepard in the next few episodes. Scott Carpenter, as we know from Mercury, never flew in space again because Chris Craft was very upset with him. So, as we mentioned, he became an aquanaut, moved on from NASA. John Glenn also never flew in space again for Gemini or Apollo, but he resigned from NASA in 1964. He originally intended to run for a Senate seat, but he slipped and hit his head, and he severely injured his inner ear, so he withdrew from the race to recover. And he then ran again for the Ohio Senate seat in 1974. He won that race, and then he held that seat for the next four consecutive terms until he retired in January of 1999. It's one of the longest Ohio Senate runs of all time, I believe. And in 1998, while he was still a senator, senator, he went into space on the space shuttle Discovery. So he didn't fly for Apollo or Gemini, but he did go back into space. For nine days, he was a mission specialist on the Discovery space shuttle. He was 77 years old, which is really impressive. He was the oldest person to ever travel in space. I believe as of 2021, that record has not been broken. Not that I've heard of. To be honest, I haven't really been up on NASA these days, but I don't recall ever hearing about someone that old going into space. And it was 
I think it was a good thing. Some people kind of criticized it as a publicity stunt for NASA. Whatever. If it was a publicity stunt, I think it was a cool thing. I'm sure Glenn was ecstatic to get back into space. And if NASA wants some publicity and they want to use one of their most heroic figures to do it, good for them. If everybody's on board, what's the big deal? But 1998, went to space one more time. Unfortunately, John Glenn died in 2016, December of 2016. He lived quite a full life, though. He was 95 when he died, and he was the last surviving and oldest member of the Mercury 7 when he passed away. He's buried at Arlington Seminary. <laughs> Seminary. Arlington Cemetery. My goodness. What is wrong with me? Well, that backfired so much for being serious and somber about the death of an American hero. But he is. He's buried at Arlington Cemetery. And fun little fact I want to throw in there. I was in Washington, D.C., and found the plot that he was buried in the day after he was buried there, which I thought was really, really cool to see. He was buried there, I think, on a Wednesday, and I visited Arlington on a Thursday and got to see his grave. It was a special moment, even though it was really just a pile of dirt with a plaque on it that they didn't have time for a tombstone yet. But it was, it was a pretty cool experience. So now we've talked about the people and we've talked about the past and it's time now we talk a little bit about the equipment that Project Gemini used and how it was different from Project Mercury. For the first thing, obviously as we've talked about, Project Gemini used a capsule that was much bigger, actually had room for two astronauts instead of just the one. It was not a large and luxurious space by any means. I've heard it compared to basically two grown men in a Volkswagen Beetle or something a little bit smaller even. But it was roomy, and so you weren't up there alone, and that was a big deal. And probably the most important thing that was different from the Mercury capsule, if you remember when we talked about Mercury, one of the reasons that the astronauts were somewhat ridiculed is because they weren't actually flying the capsule. They were along for the ride, basically. And they could change their attitude, which is the orientation of the capsule in three dimensions in space. But that was about it. They were pretty much just floating in orbit around the Earth until they fired their retro rockets to re-enter. The Gemini capsule was different. The Gemini capsule had what was called the Orbit Attitude and Maneuvering System, OAMS. And what that did was provided attitude control... But not only that, it provided linear up and down, sideways, and forward-aft flight control. So they could basically fly. They could go to a higher altitude, a lower altitude. They could go backwards, they could go forward, and they could go side to side. Now, why is this important? It's important because as we talked about with the goals of Project Gemini, one of the goals and one of the most important goals was being able to rendezvous and dock with other spacecraft while in orbit around the Earth. That was a crucial development because without being able to rendezvous and dock with other spacecraft, the moon missions could not happen. That was a critical part of being able to move on to Project Apollo. If they could not master 
rendezvousing with other spacecraft and then docking with other spacecraft, the moon missions could not happen. And so it was incredibly important that they master manual control of the Gemini capsule. The other thing that they could do that would help them with rendezvous and docking is not only could they fly side to side up and down, they can actually change their orbital inclination around the Earth. So when you go into orbit, obviously what's happening is the spacecraft is trying to fly off into space and Earth gravity is pulling it back down, whipping it around into an orbit. It's a continuing, continuing tug of war. Spacecraft trying to fly in a straight line away from Earth and Earth's gravity pulling it back down into an orbit that is usually oval-shaped. Around and around and around it goes. And if that spacecraft is orbiting exactly on the equator, it's called an orbital inclination of zero degrees. And then as you go up, if you're going from pole to pole, so an orbit that goes over the South Pole and then up to the North Pole, that's an orbital inclination of 90 degrees. And the spacecraft that was used for Project Gemini was able to change that. They could go from 0 to 90 or to 180, which was orbiting on the equator but going in the opposite direction of Earth's rotation. It's called a retrograde orbit. And that's another important part of Project Gemini, being able to control that inclination in case they needed to rendezvous with a spacecraft that was in a different orbit around the Earth. And then, of course, almost as important, or maybe more important, is being able to control how high their orbit was above the Earth, whether they needed to go to a higher orbit, a lower orbit, whatever they needed to do to be able to rendezvous with other spacecraft, they were now able to actually fly the Gemini capsule so that they were able to progress to the next step of spaceflight in preparation for landing on the moon in the near future. So, of course, the other piece of equipment that is integral to spaceflight is the rocket, the rocket that brings astronauts from Earth through the atmosphere and into orbit. Now, for Mercury, the rocket did not have to be a massive piece of machinery. They were missions that had not a lot of weight in the capsule, and they were missions that were shorter orbit or suborbital flights. So the Redstone and Atlas rockets were adequate for Mercury, but they were not adequate for the more robust and bigger missions of Project Gemini. Of course, there's more weight in the capsule, a bigger capsule, and a an extra astronaut in the capsule. They needed to upgrade. And so they used the Titan II rocket. The Titan II rocket was the rocket that was used for all Gemini spaceflight, if I remember correctly. And it was much more powerful. And I want to share the specs of the rocket. Now, the reason I do this, most importantly, is because I want it in your brain when I move on to the next series, which is Project Apollo. And I want you to be able to compare this rocket to the Saturn V rocket that... Apollo uses so that you can remember just how massive the Saturn V rocket is. It's really, truly incredible. So that's a little teaser for the next couple episodes. But the Titan II rocket, 109 feet tall, about a third of a football field. So not small, but not huge either. And it weighed about 340,000 pounds when it was fully fueled, which meant that it needed a thrust of 430,000 pounds of force. So in order to get the 340,000 pounds into orbit, the engines fired 430,000 
pounds of force. And that was the rocket that was developed in order to put the Gemini capsule into orbit around the Earth for an extended period of time. A fun fact that I did come across that is somewhat related to equipment is that Gemini was the first space missions that were controlled from the Manned Spacecraft Center in Houston, Texas. Not all of Gemini was. Gemini 1 and 2 were unmanned missions, and Gemini 3 was the first manned mission that was still using the old control center. But from Gemini 4 onward, all space flights are controlled from the Manned Spacecraft Center in Houston, Texas, which is why famously you'll hear astronauts referring to Houston when they are calling back to Earth. And I thought that was a bit of a fun fact. It was called the Manned Spacecraft Center in the time of Apollo and Gemini. Nowadays, it's renamed to the Lyndon B. Johnson Space Center. But I thought that was a fun fact I'd throw in there as well. Before moving on to actual Gemini space flights, I do want to talk about a few men who are maybe not as well known among astronauts. And they are not well known for tragic reasons. There have never been, uh, that's that's incorrect, I shouldn't say that. There was not, during the space race of Mercury, Gemini, or Apollo, any deaths in space. It wasn't until 1986 or 87, when the Challenger exploded, that there was actual deaths in the space flight realm. But that does not mean that there was no tragedy surrounding the space race. And I do want to talk about a few men that deserve recognition, but maybe do not get the recognition that they are due. Theodore Freeman was part of the third group of the astronauts that were chosen in 1963. And he was in training. And on October 31, 1964, Freeman was on approach to Ellington Air Force Base and a Canada goose slammed into his canopy. Now, after the tragedy occurred, Jim Lovell was put in charge of the investigation, and what he determined was that when this goose slammed into the canopy, it created shards of the canopy that were sucked into the engine, causing the engines to flame out. And Freeman was on approach, so he was close to the runway, and he thought that he could land, but he realized that he was short and was in danger of hitting some buildings. It actually was base housing, I think. So definitely a dangerous place to crash land a plane. And realizing this, he banked away from the runway and ejected. But unfortunately, in his investigation, Lovell determined that he was far too low and actually the nose of his plane had been tilting downward. So when Freeman ejected, he basically ejected horizontally and at a very low altitude. His parachute was not able to deploy before he hit the ground. And of course, that led to his death on impact with the ground. A tragedy, of course, but Freeman fairly heroically saved lives. If he would have continued to try to save his own life by landing... It is most likely that he would have ended up crashing into base housing. He would have still probably been killed, 
but he probably would have killed many more people on the ground. So heroically trying to avoid that situation, banked away, nobody else was killed, but unfortunately he was. He was buried at Arlington with full honors. He was the first of the NASA astronaut corps to perish, but unfortunately he was not the last. Elliot C. and Charles Bassett were crewmates. They were tagged to work the same mission. Elliot C. was a part of the New Nine, as I mentioned earlier, and Charles Bassett was, again, a member of the class of 1963. They were scheduled to crew Gemini 9 in 1966, and C. had been working with the team on developing guidance and navigation systems, Bassett had been working with astronaut training and simulation. And on February 28, 1966, C and Bassett left Ellington Air Force Base in a T-38, and they were going to fly to St. Louis. C was the pilot, and Bassett was in the T-38 back seat. Now, they were intending to go to St. Louis to spend some time in the rendezvous simulator at the McDonnell Douglas facility. McDonnell Douglas was the manufacturer, and the St. Louis facility is the place where the Gemini capsule was manufactured. As they came into St. Louis, the weather was very poor, and there was a low cloud cover. And so C, after descending through the cloud, or the soup, realized that he was too far down the runway to land, and so he had to reapproach. The backup crew to Gemini 9, Elliot C. and Charles Bassett's mission, was actually following C. in a follow-up T-38, and realizing the mistake, they flew up into the crowd, cloud cover and did a proper reapproach using instruments and landed safely. Elliot C., realizing how far down the runway he was, started to bank to his left, but he decided that he wanted to keep the field in view by staying under the cloud cover. This proved to be a fatal error. If he had done what the backup crew had done and pulled up, gone through the clouds, made a reapproach using his instruments, most likely would have been able to land safely, such as the backup crew did. But by staying under the cloud cover, he was quite low to the ground. And as he continued his left turn, his left turn, excuse me, he continued to angle toward what was called McDonald Building 101. And it soon became apparent to see that his sink rate was too low. And when he realized this, he cut in his afterburners and attempted a sharp right turn. But it was too late. He struck the roof of the building, which caused the T-38 to crash into the courtyard beyond the building, and both C and Bassett were killed in the crash. Another tragedy that bedeviled the Gemini program. Alan Shepard was put in charge of the investigation, and he determined it to be a crash caused by poor weather conditions and pilot error. And both Charles Bassett and Elliot C. were buried at Arlington, but unfortunately they were never given the opportunity to fly in space. The Gemini 9 mission was crewed by the backup crew that had landed safely, 
And unfortunately, from what I've seen, it appears that the three men killed before going in on their missions in Gemini are largely forgotten. So when studying the space race, it's important to remember that even men that did not get to space were integral to the project. And it is important to remember that they died in the line of duty serving their country. They're patriotic Americans, and their death was a tragedy. So when studying the space race, please do not forget about Theodore Freeman, Charles Bassett, and Elliot C. Despite the tragedies, Project Gemini had many, many triumphs. They started with Gemini 1 and 2, which were unmanned launches that were mostly designed to test out the Titan II rocket and make sure that all systems were go for the manned missions that started with Gemini 3. But if you want to hear about the manned flights, you're going to have to come back and listen to the next episode I am out of time today. I want to make sure I put all the Gemini missions in one episode. So I am going to stop for today. And in a couple weeks, you'll have to tune back in to hear about Gemini space flights. Who was in charge? Who flew in space for Gemini? And most importantly, who ate a corned beef sandwich while in orbit around the planet Earth? So this is the Curiosity Chronicles. I am your host, Brett Bilesma. And until next time, I hope you stay curious.